Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Amen. So this morning, we're going to go a little bit further into uh, the ideas that Pastor Doug laid out last week and take just a a longer look, a more in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer, which is a really, really common prayer, and everybody in here can probably recite that prayer without even having to look up on the screen, but we're going to have it up there anyway, okay? So let's read this together, and let's pray this together. It starts off, this is in Matthew verse, uh, uh, chapter 6, and it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you that the scripture has been speaking, God, your words have been speaking for thousands of years, and they're still as relevant today as they have always been, and and they will always be relevant. And so we ask that you would soften our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would move. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you're here right now. Lord, soften hearts, open our ears to hear. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are many types of prayers that are found in the Bible. There are prayers of faith, there's prayers of agreements, there's prayer of request, um, also known as petition or supplication. There's prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of worship, prayers of consecration, of intercession, prayers of imprecation or imprecatory prayers, which is asking for divine judgment to be called down, like lightning bolt over here, Lord. And not just because, don't worry about that, that wasn't a personal thing for that section. Just a general, if my mic was in my left hand, maybe I would have done that side. So don't take that too personally. But prayers for divine vengeance, there's prayers in the spirit, praying in the spirit. And you can find them through the Old Testament. You can find them in the New Testament. The book of Psalms is quite literally full of prayers. But it's interesting, the disciples saw Jesus praying and they said, teach us how to pray. And it wasn't a prayer for the miraculous, necessarily. It wasn't, a, it wasn't fire from heaven. But it was a prayer of formation, actually. It was a prayer for those of us who are in the trenches of life, the day-to-day type of people, right? Who are on the grind and who have experienced trouble. When I was a kid, there was a, a Chinese restaurant that we used to go to to get takeout every now and then, and in front of this restaurant in the foyer area, there was a wishing well. And I would secretly grab change from the couches and anywhere else I could find it. Uh, I wasn't saved at that point, obviously, so maybe that's what was happening. The baptism didn't work at that that young of an age for me. I got baptized again, so it's okay. And as my parents would go into pick up the food, I would stay in the front and I would throw coins into the wishing well. And I would always do this sales pitch to my parents, right? When, if if you have a family, you kind of know how this is. But sometimes there's this space where your parents don't really know what to do for dinner and they're kind of like, yeah, what do we, what should we do for dinner? And so that's the, that's the, the place where your kids will throw in their opinion. Sometimes it's McDonald's, it's Pizza Hut, it's something like that. And I would always pitch the Chinese restaurant. 
And to be fair, the, the almond chicken was amazing. It was fire. It was loaded with MSG. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. <clears throat> and at some point, after many years, um, I, I matured eventually. So a couple years ago, maybe. And I realized that I treated my prayer life much like a wishing well. And I view God like a genie who only existed to make my wishes come true. And I'm not saying that the wishing well is your story or anything like that. But my experience with walking with people, other Christians over the years, is that many times what leads us to prayer is trouble and we want to fix right now. I want to fix yesterday. And it isn't that God doesn't care about your immediate needs, but it's that he sees problems differently than we do. And his goal and our goal at times are not the same. This is a piece of writing from Ian Bounds, and uh, it's, I've quoted him many times, powerful writings about prayer. It's very long. It's, it's written uh, in the 1800s, and so the language is a little bit weird. We're going to have it up on the screens. And I want to read this to you. He says, trouble and prayer are closely related to each other. Prayer is of great value to trouble. Trouble often drives men to God in prayer, while prayer is but the voice of men in trouble. There's great value in prayer in the time of trouble. Prayer often delivers out of trouble and still oftener, more often, gives strength to bear trouble, ministers comfort in trouble, and begets patience in the midst of trouble. Wise is he in the day of trouble who knows his true source of strength and who fails not to pray. Trouble belongs to the present state of man on earth. Man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. Trouble is common to man. There is no exception in any age or clime or station, rich and poor alike, the learned and the ignorant, one and all are partakers of this sad and painful inheritance of the fall of man. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. The day of trouble dawns on everyone at some time in his life. The evil days come and the years draw nigh when the heart feels its heavy pressure. It is an entirely false view of life and shows supreme ignorance that expects nothing but sunshine and looks only for ease and pleasure and lowers. It is this class who are sadly disappointed and surprised when trouble breaks into their lives. And these are the ones who know not God, who know nothing of his disciplinary dealings with his people and who are prayerless. Oof. What an infinite variety there is in the troubles of life. See, the first mention of prayer in the scriptures in Genesis, guess what it was shortly after? The fall. And shortly after the fall, there was trouble. And all it says is, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And all of that to say, if you pray because of trouble, you're in good company. Welcome to the club. 
But the Lord is looking to do something deeper in your life. He's looking to do something more formational, something long-lasting in your life. Amen? The Lord's prayer is formational. The, the prayer itself is found in the center of the Sermon of the, on the Mount, if you're familiar with that. And the heart behind it follows right here when Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And it's interesting because one of the most common prayers at that time, and also for hundreds of years before that, would have been called the Shema, if you've studied any of the Old Testament or Judaism, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus and his disciples would have been 100% immersed in that prayer, more than likely prayed it two times a day. And when Jesus goes to teach his disciples how to pray, he changes it up a little bit. And he starts off with our Father. So right away, Jesus is speaking to our identity, first and foremost, who we are in comparison, in relation to God, our Father. As we pray our Father, we actually recognize who we are and we recognize who he is, right? That we are not distant relations. We're not fake friends on social media. But that we are actually deeply connected to the one who made us. And it's not a one-sided relationship of you just talking and there's nothing coming back. It isn't the type of relationship that only goes one way, right? God wants relationship. And this is true right from the beginning. We actually see this in the book of Genesis, that God is walking in the garden, which is an idiom for saying that he's looking for relationship, for friendship, for something a connection with humanity. In Psalms 25, the psalmist recognized this. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. The psalmist had a revelation about the type of re relationship that we have with God, our Father, right? And the other thing that this reminds us to do is to pray as children. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Some of you have kids in this room, grandkids, great-grandkids. That doesn't change the fact that God is your father. Amen? And so we pray as children. And what that means is that we pray like we have all the faith in the world. We're, we're instructed several times in the scripture actually to have childlike faith, which is like unflinching belief. My life is children right now. We have four kids that are 12 to 6. Let's think about that for a second. And if you've had kids, then you know what I'm about to say is true, but there's so many times where they will bring me something that is absolutely shattered, vaporized. There's no way to put it back together. It's not going to happen. And they'll be like, Dad, can you fix this? I know you can fix this. You're like, this is a crime, dude. You, you need to be arrested for this. I don't know how you even did this. 
but it's, it's the unflinching belief that you can do that because you're the dad, right? And the mom, not just dads in there. But the point is, is that that's the type of faith that we need when we come to prayer. We pray our father like kids who know that he can do all things. But for many of us, the childlike faith that we are supposed to have was buried in troubles. And I think one of the reasons that we love nostalgia and we love nostalgic things and we reminisce about the good old days is because it actually reminds us of the wonder that we used to have about life, about dreams, about all your hopes when you were a kid. And it kind of resurrects that hope a little bit in us as we reminisce and we look back at those things. When you believe that literally anything could happen and miracles were possible. And somewhere along the way, we lost it. And our Father is also a difficult thing to pray for those of us that didn't have a healthy father figure. Or maybe you don't know your father. And there's a whole range of experiences across this room, good, bad. Maybe your dad was angry, and maybe he was harsh. Or maybe he didn't want you at all. And so prayer is the unrelenting work against not only our own, our, our own cynicism and our own hurts, but the voids that are in us as people and the empty spaces that exist within us to say, God, I have a father, and he's enough, and he's all in all. Amen? It's a reminder that we are not alone. You're not alone. That you haven't been forgotten, you have not been abandoned, but we have a father. And he knows what we need before we ask. I said need, not want. <laughs> he knows what you need. Those are different things. I have to remind my kids of that many times. Need and want are different things. <laughs> but the God who sees you, who knows you, who wants a relationship with you. And so we pray our Father. And I love that the start of this formation, this formative prayer that Jesus says you should be praying this way is to recognize this truth before all the other ones. That you're loved, that you're seen, that you're wanted, that your identity is secure in him. Amen? And we're just going to keep moving through this prayer. In verse 10, it says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For myself, this is one of the more difficult parts of this prayer to pray. The human will is amazing. And, and I love reading uh, survival stories and things like that that are just it's a little, I don't want to get into it in church, it's kind of graphic, um, but humans are capable of crazy stuff to survive, right? The will that people have that is inherently in us is just powerful. And that's a double-edged sword sometimes. 
to pray this with sincerity, we actually have to be able to realign our will to his will. And that is one of those things that is easy to say and it's hard to do. Everyone in this room, you probably have a favorite book. I know it's the Bible, so. so. <laughs> you got a favorite book, you've got a favorite movie or show. And usually in any good book or movie, the main character is actually relatable. You like it probably because the main character is relatable. And that's normally how those things are crafted. And so praying your kingdom come and your will be done is to recognize that you are not the main character in your own story. But God is actually the main character. And it's actually his story. And we're just a part of that story. And so we pray this way, your kingdom come and your will be done. And we partner with God to do what it is that he wants to do. And we ask, Lord, what's happening in your story that I can help with? The church universal was born in prayer. But this church specifically was born in prayer. And it started because people gathered to pray, to call upon the name of the Lord. And, and I was thinking about this and I wondered, what kind of prayers would we hear if we were able to go back 35 plus years? Some, I think there's some people that were still here, are still here, for those initial prayer meetings. But if we could go back and we could listen, I'm guessing you would hear something like, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. And so the question is, do we actually pray this with honesty, with, authentic, with authenticity, with, with earnest? Or are we afraid of what sacrifice will have to be made when we truly do pray this and say, Lord, I really mean I'll do what you ask me to do. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. But here's the other beautiful thing as we pray this is that we also invite the present reality of the kingdom into our space, right, into our world. It's both eschatological, which means it deals with something in the future, end times. But Jesus makes it clear, and so did the early church, that the kingdom of heaven is actually within reach. And as we do, as we pray this way, there's this exchange and we actually lay down our kingdom to gain his kingdom, which is far better than anything that we can do in our own power. Amen. In verse 11, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is a, a really powerful symbol in the Bible. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, Jacob offers a sacrifice and he kind of seals the deal by eating bread. And then Jesus says in the New Testament, I am the bread of life. Manna was called bread from heaven. And I'm, I'm sorry if you're gluten-free or can't eat bread. We'll pray that you get healed. <laughs> um, if you know anything about my life or my wife, you know that my life is immersed in bread. <laughs> Daily, <laughs> literally. 
My wife bakes multiple loaves of amazing sourdough bread every single day. And the process itself is really amazing to watch. Um, but if your New Year's resolution was to cut down on bread or carbs or keto, you're going to have a real bad time around our house. It will be your nightmare. When I smell fresh baked bread, it makes me happy. Um, I'm not tired of it yet. I don't walk through my door after work to the smell of fresh baked bread and go, oh, are you kidding? Are you still baking bread? I don't do that. There's no secret to this idea of daily bread. Daily bread is sustenance, right? Um, it's for everyone. It's like, I need something right now to sustain me. It's for the mom who's been at home all day with the kids. It's for the struggling single mom who's working, barely getting by, who wishes that she could be home with her kids. It's for the, the nine to five and the night shift and the employee who's overworked and he's underpaid and the business owner who's seeing good times and the business owner who's seeing bad times. It's asking for the thing that I need right now. I am not going to make it. <laughs> and it's spiritual, but it's not only spiritual. And so as we pray this section, we're asking for what we need. The people that were listening to Jesus at this time would have literally just needed food. I need food to get through the day to sustain their work for that day. And maybe that's you sitting here right now. You're like, I need something tangible and real, or I'm not going to make it through. Tomorrow, next week, whatever it might be. But what I love about this prayer, and of course all of it, but specifically this part, is that it says us. It says us. As I pray this prayer, I'm praying for you too. It's communal in nature. As you pray this prayer, you're praying for me as well. And you didn't even know it. Give us what we need, Lord. Give your people what we need today. But this is also the cry of every human on this planet. Our world is hungry and our appetites can't be satisfied. You'll be hungry again. And that's not about food. I'm sure you're picking up on that. You'll be hungry again. It's about life. And it's not difficult to see what this means when you look at anybody's life, mine included, when you see what we chase. And the things that we think will satisfy us, and they momentarily do for a little bit. But in the morning, you will wake up and you will be empty again. Because Jesus alone is the continual sustaining contentment that we're actually looking for. Everything else is going to leave you not fully satisfied. And then in verse 12, it says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is after something in this phrase. Because 
he expounds on this idea actually before the text and then after the text. He actually ends this prayer by talking about this part specifically. We must be a people who forgive those who have injured us, those who have wronged us. And that doesn't mean that what they did was okay. doesn't mean that there shouldn't be justice or anything like that. But what it does mean is that they don't have a hold on you anymore. God forgives us, and we must forgive others. Another thing that is easy to say and very easy to do. Sometimes it's easy to say, I forgive you. But your actions have to show that you actually do. <laughs> and that can be more difficult. And it's not easy depending on the level of hurt that, you, that other people have inflicted on you, right? But the real question is, do you want to be free of that? And I do. In verse 14, this is the verse that I'm talking about, but he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A lot of people love Jesus and the grace and all those things, and then they kind of forget some of the things that he actually said. He had some very difficult things to say that require action. And how this is structured is also really interesting because it's assumed that you've actually already done this. That's how it's phrased. You've already forgiven them, right? Right? It's assumed that you've already done this, that you've already forgiven people as you've gone to pray. And the implication is that we have to be so quick to forgive that it doesn't weigh on you. It's not with you. And we're talking about formation. And the thing is, is that we know this to be true. God loves you where you're at. He loves you where you're at. He found us. You didn't find him. And he loves you where you're at, but he will not let you stay there. And he is relentless in his mission to mold you into the image of his son. That's his mission. Your mission may be totally different. Lord, I need this. And then in verse 13, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I just want to paraphrase this. Lord, lead and guide my paths and my steps. Don't let me wander down roads that don't lead to you. Don't let my path stray into places that my faith can't endure. This is a prayer for things to come, right? And we pray this way to let the Lord lead and guide us in everything that we do. The whole text of the Lord's Prayer, it's inset in most of your Bibles, even if it's a digital one, which is usually a sign that it's, it's a quote from the Old Testament or another book. But the reality is, is that it was 
written in a different language. Jesus didn't teach the disciples how to pray in Hebrew that was used in the synagogue liturgy. He taught it to them in Aramaic, which was the common language of the people. Your words with the Lord don't need to be fancy. They don't, they don't need to be eloquent or whatever other thing. You don't have to pray like a pastor that's on social media or whatever it is that you've seen. You need to just talk to God. Before he jumps into the Lord's Prayer in verse 6, he says this, But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And this is a buffer against hypocrisy and the false self that we as people project many times. Because you are who you really are when no one is around and the Lord knows this. We put up fronts and we dress ourselves in all sorts of different costumes, overconfidence, underconfidence. And the truth is there's probably only a few people, maybe your spouse, who knows who you really, 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 really are. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's not condemnation. Just saying that's true. But when it's just you and God, there isn't anything to hide. There's no pretense. You are bare before the Lord. And so the real you can actually pray. Who you actually are can pray when there's no one around. And there's space to say what you need to say to the Lord. Things that might be actually difficult to say in front of other people. But the real impetus or, or the drive of this statement is the wisdom and the truth of a father who actually knows the downfall of chasing the praises of men. Attention, fame, whatever you want to put in that category. Making people happy. People pleasing. Because he knows that that's a winding and never-ending road that leads to absolutely nowhere. But the reward of the father is not fleeting. It doesn't leave you empty because the truth actually sets you free, right? And this practice keeps us grounded and rooted in him, and it reminds us that who we are when no one is around really matters. It's a big deal, who you are when no one is watching. The Lord's Prayer tells us what to pray, but the Psalms teach us how to pray. And hopefully you have ventured into the Psalms in your readings. Hopefully you've been a little shocked at what you read, <laughs> surprised. The Psalms teaches us to pray from your guts, to pray from your heart, to pray from everything that you have. All the emotions, all the things, let that out before the Lord. In Psalm 88, this is just one example. I could have gone really hard on this one, okay? I didn't. In Psalm 88, it says, At night, I cry aloud in your presence. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is filled with troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. The Psalms are full of this entire 
the range of, of human experience and emotion when it comes to prayer. And some of us, I think, are too afraid to pray in that way, even though it's literally written in the scripture. Let the Lord hear your cry. Say the things that you're afraid to say and pray the things that you are afraid to pray. That rhymed a little bit. Trouble, many times, leads us to pray. But God uses that trouble to shape and to form us that we can piece by piece and brick by brick build his kingdom on the earth. In 1 Peter, we are called living stones. You and I are called living stones, the church. It's not the building that we gather in or any building, but it's people. Living stones being built into a temple, which is the dwelling place of God. And if you know anything about temples, especially when it comes to the scripture, the Old Testament, they are places where heaven and earth are one. Where the presence of God exists and there's nothing between it. There's no veil. There's nothing in the way. And where his presence is and where we do his will, his kingdom is manifest and it's established on the earth, right? Or at your house or in this place. And there's always so many questions about miracles and wrestling with faith and all those things. And I think the miracles will come. God does what he wills through whom he wills. And I have personally seen things that I, I can't explain. And God has used me in ways that were very, very uncomfortable to minister to other people. Because I'm fairly logical, uh, a little bit cynical. I'm a realist. I've been that way since I was a kid. My aunt and uncle tell a story. Uh, when I was about four or five years old, they were babysitting. They were watching me. My parents were out on a date, and they were trying to get me to eat broccoli. And at the time, this was the 80s, okay? So at the time, He-Man was, that was my thing. Okay, I don't know if you know, if anybody knows what that is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay, roided out guy with a sword. Okay, if you're a four-year-old, what's better than that? There's nothing. He-Man was my thing. And my aunt looked at me and she said, well, He-Man eats his vegetables. That's why he's so strong. You don't tell a four-year-old that it's steroids. Okay. <clears throat> and so I looked at my uncle who was sitting there. He was eating his broccoli. And I eyed him up and down. I assessed him as a man. I noticed that he had a watch on and I, I looked at my aunt and said well I'm not He-Man I'm just Drew and I don't even have a watch and all that to say and I'm not saying this is a daily thing daily basis or anything like that 
but God has continually done things in my life that have embarrassed the cynic in me, that have humbled the reason, the logic. And he's shown up in ways that I can't explain. There's no way this person should have known that. It's impossible for them to have known that other than God told them that. There are things that I've been able to participate in that the Lord's used me in that there's just no way. I'm like, I, I, I'm nobody. God is the only reason that anything good could happen out of that situation. And in all of that, I've just, for myself, committed to just pray. No matter what. Whether I feel like it, whether I don't, doesn't matter. Whether God does something or doesn't will not change the fact that I'm going to keep praying. And I think there's some people in the room who need to just be reminded to not give up. Do not stop praying. Do not stop wrestling with the Lord. And many of the stories that are found in Scripture, you're probably all very familiar with them, but there is a space between the promise when God said, I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to do this thing in you. There is a space between that thing and the fulfillment of that promise. Sometimes it's a very, very long time. Sometimes there is a desert in between those two places. Sometimes there's a wilderness. Sometimes there's a place of wrestling. Don't stop yet. Keep wrestling, keep praying. Let the Lord use those spaces between the promise and the fulfillment to shape you, to do the things that he wants to do in here. Can we take a few moments and just pray?